Well, to begin this morning, I want to share with you guys, I want to be a little vulnerable and a little transparent about one of the weaker areas of my life. I want to invite you into one of those areas of my soul that's more imperfect. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Paul Gardner and I serve as one of the pastors here. And if you hang around me long enough, one of the things you're going to learn about me is that while I'm, well, I'm pretty smart, when it comes to handyman skills, I am utterly deficient, totally depraved. I, I need to be rescued. M- Michelle, Michelle will say something like, the door handle came off, or, or the window is leaking, the, the paint on the cabinet is peeling, and I, exper- I experience a cascade of negative reactions. So several weeks ago, during a gospel community gathering at our home, we we discovered that the faucet to our kitchen sink was broken. We could no longer properly turn on the water or turn off the water. And so in such a moment, my heart begins to race. Beads of sweat start to form on my forehead. I begin thinking about the project to repair it, and I get lightheaded. The room starts to spin. I fear failure, and I experience this, this, impen- this dooming shame over not being a man who can fix broken things in his home. At this point, I feel as though I'm being held captive or held hostage by this broken faucet. And these negative reactions associated with this broken faucet, and the keys to being set free, they are certainly not something I have access to. To be set free, I need to find a YouTube video I haven't figured out yet. Or I need to scour the hardware store for the perfect part to fix the the faucet. Or maybe I need to access someone. A plumber. An associate at the hardware store. A friend who's willing to help me in the midst of my brokenness and weakness. I believe there is freedom from the brokenness of my home. But for me... The answer to that brokenness, it's not easy to access. I don't have the skills or the knowledge to get it done. I must access something or someone to experience freedom. This concept of needing access to something or someone, it has much to do with where we're headed this morning. If you weren't with us last week, Pastor Chris began a new preaching series called Reformation 500. First City Church, during the month of October, along with churches throughout the globe, we're observing the 500th anniversary of something called the Reformation, a time in church history when the church was reformed and splintered in significant ways, moving away from concerning doctrine and concerning practices perpetuated within the church of the day. As we move into these debates, we stand in the shadows of church reformers, and I think it's important to remember their aim was not so much debate, and many did not aim to be right. The aim for the church was to be healthy. Many never longed for the church to be divided. They desired a church to be whole and the church to be healthy. 
So this series is much less, as we're looking at the Reformation, it's much less about how Protestants and Roman Catholics differ today, although that's certainly part of what we're talking about, but more so about recovery of biblical doctrine that that occurred 500 years ago. We want to celebrate recovery of those doctrines. We want to help individuals in the church understand those doctrines. We want to help apply those doctrines in deeper ways. So one of the things that frustrated Martin Luther the most during the time of the Reformation was not access to broken things in the home. It was the issue of needing to access someone or something to fix one's broken standing with God. Roman Catholics had a strong view of sin and God's wrath, but what troubled Luther was that God's people did not experience the freedom and forgiveness they had in the gospel. A Roman Catholic would certainly profess Christ had died for people's sins, but the only way to access the grace and mercy of Christ was if one sought out a priest. The priest held the keys for individuals to experience freedom from guilt. The priest held the keys for individuals to experience freedom from fear of God's punishment. The priest held the keys for individuals to experience freedom from shame. Let me give you a few examples. Sacrament of confession. To properly confess sin, one had to seek out a priest prior to be absolved of that sin. Sacrament of penance. After confessing sin, the priest would prescribe penance. Particular rituals, prayers, or seasons of fasting, only after one completed the penance prescribed by the priest was one cleansed of confessed sins. Sacrament of extreme unction. To access grace, a sick or dying person needed to have a Roman Catholic priest visit her or him. This sacrament takes away punishment due to sin and prepares one for immediate entry into heaven. If someone did not have access to a priest... Sins committed between one's last confession and one's death would result from separation from God in purgatory. For those unfamiliar with purgatory, it's a place one goes to to receive final purification before entering heaven. And four, the the practice of indulgences. Pastor Chris briefly mentioned this last week. If one wanted to avoid practices of penance, One could go on a pilgrimage or contribute monetarily to the church. And if one did this, a priest might declare one free from the practice of penance or spending time in purgatory. One priest named John Tetzel during this time made up a catchy jingle. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. If you gave money to to a priest for an indulgence, you could access freedom from purgatory. You could access the forgiveness and mercy and grace purchased, Christ purchased for his people. Roman Catholic priests were powerful, by many accounts too powerful. They held power over the people in the church. They held power over nation states. They appeared to hold power over who and who could not access the good news of the gospel. This infuriated Luther. As such, in one of his most famous works, The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, Luther argued the medieval church had imprisoned access to the gospel in a, com- in a complex system of priests and sacraments. The priests had been given too much and were exercising too much authority. Luther said, At last, 
Some have even begun to give orders to the angels in heaven and to boast with an incredible frenzy of impiety that they have received the right to rule in heaven and on earth and have the power of binding, meaning they could bind people in heaven. They, could, they have the power of binding even in heaven. Thus they say not a word about the saving faith of the people, but talk largely of the tyrannical power of the pontiffs, the, the, the hierarchical structure of the Roman Catholic Church, whereas Christ's words do not deal at all with power, but entirely with faith. As Luther studied Scripture, he, he came to the conclusion the practice of the priesthood within the Roman Catholic Church was not biblical. Earlier, Ben read 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. According to the Apostle Peter, a Christian is, among other things, a royal priest. A Christian's fundamental disposition toward the Lord is not defined by her or his sin. Even though a Christian has sinned, even though a Christian deserves punishment, even though sin leads to separation from a holy God, if you have faith in Christ, you do not stand condemned. You will not receive God's punishment. The shame one carries for past sins and past transgressions, it's no longer yours to carry. And one doesn't need to access a priest to be absolved of sin. The priest does not hold the keys to access such truth. A Christian doesn't need to seek out an earthly priest because a Christian is a priest. This morning, as we continue our Reformation 500 series, we're going to examine a doctrine called the priesthood of all believers. Martin Luther contested that it wasn't just Roman Catholic priests who held the keys to forgiveness and justification and mercy. All believers did. All believers could know they were forgiven. All believers could know they no longer stood condemned before a holy God. All believers could know they were invited into God's presence. So to help us understand this doctrine... We're going to examine the biblical office of the priesthood from three different angles. The Levitical priesthood, which is the the Old Testament priesthood, the priesthood of Jesus Christ, and the priesthood of all believers. So let's begin with the Levitical priesthood. When many of us think of the term priesthood, we think of a person, a person in formal attire, a person standing at the front of the church an individual separated from the rest of the church. When Peter uses the phrase priesthood, this is less what he has in mind. More so, he's referring to a particular office or position or one's standing with God. So to build a proper understanding of what Peter is getting at, we must go back to the Old Testament. We must go back to where the office is officially introduced in the 8th chapter of the book of Leviticus. If you have your Bibles with you, you might want to open it up there. We're going to spend a little bit of time looking at Leviticus 8. First, a little background. Before this chapter, the book of Exodus and the first seven chapters of Leviticus provide instructions for how God's people are to live. 
God has set them apart. He has chosen them. They are to be a blessing to the nations. As such, they are to live differently than their neighbors. They are to reflect his holiness and his glory. And so he gives them the law. He instructs them how to eat, how they are to relate to one another in marriage, how they are to submit to authority, and then he teaches them how they are to worship. So God instructs Moses in verse 3, hey, you're going to gather the entire assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The people are to worship God at the tent of meeting. In later times in Israel, it will be the temple. The people will go there to meet with God, to encounter God's presence. But there's a problem. God is holy. God is pure. God is clean. He has proven his character, that he is faithful to his promises. The Israelites, on the other hand, they have proven they are lawbreakers. Rather than love God in his ways, an Israelite often rejects God. He embraces lusts of the flesh. He is unfaithful. He is impure as such. He has no business going to to be in God's presence. He deserves separation. So God institutes the office of the priesthood. The office of the priesthood demonstrates God takes sin seriously. He doesn't dismiss it. Yet he provides a means of grace for his people to commune with him and be in his presence. Priests are to be a picture that because sinful people are separated from a holy God, they need a mediator. They need someone to make sacrifice for their sin. So in verse 2, what you see is that God sets apart Aaron and his sons to serve in the office of the priesthood. Not anyone could be a priest. Not anyone could stand at the altar in God's presence. Not anyone could put on the clothes worn by a priest. Not anyone could offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. God chose Aaron and his sons, later the tribe of the Levites, to specifically serve in the Old Testament priesthood. Only they, because of genealogy or ancestry or their bloodline, were permitted to serve as priests. As you continue reading Leviticus chapter 8, you'll encounter instructions on how the priesthood is to be practiced. There's a lengthy list of items to gather. Elegant clothes, anointing oils, animals to sacrifice, and unleavened bread. And before the priest enters the tent of meeting, they are to engage in a practice to prepare them for worship. Let's read. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with a robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with a band. And he placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the Urim and the Thummim, and he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front He set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Before entering God's presence, a priest needed to be cleansed. They needed to be cleansed of sin, personal sin. Sin they had encountered. Sin that had been done against them. So they participate in a ceremonial washing to represent the cleansing of this sin. 
And before entering God's presence, a priest put on elegant garments indicating righteousness and holiness. There would be a coat and a sash around the waist and a robe and a breastpiece and a turban on his head. When an individual was clothed in this manner, it indicated he could meet with God and stand in his presence. So the priest would enter the tent of meeting and he would begin to offer sacrifices for the sins of his people, of the people. The priests would put their hands on the ram and confess the sins of the people. The animals would be sacrificed and slaughtered for these sins. Blood would be splattered on the altar. It would be clear sin is taken seriously and demands a sacrifice. For an Israelite who struggled with guilt and shame and fear of God's punishment and who needed to access forgiveness and grace and peace, the practice of the priesthood was a mixed bag. On the one hand, it was a, it was a rich reminder that God forgives sin. But on the other hand, it was a reminder that one would need to be cleansed of sin again. Listen to Pastor John Piper describe this tension. It was a gloomy reality year after year that the priests in Israel had to offer animal sacrifices for their own sins and the sins of the people. I don't mean there was no forgiveness. God appointed these sacrifices for the relief, the relief of his people, yet they and that yet they sinned and needed a substitute to bear punishment. It was mercy that God accepted the ministry of sinful priests and substitute animals, but there was a dark side to it. The people knew that when they laid their hands on the head of a bull to transfer their sins to the animal, it would have to be done again. No animal could suffice to suffer for human sins. Sinful priests had to sacrifice for their own sins. Mortal priests had to be replaced. Bulls and goats had no moral life and could bear the guilt of man. This brings us to the priesthood of Jesus Christ. One of the books of Scripture that most influenced Martin Luther as he wrestled out the conflict between biblical doctrine and the hierarchical structure and the practice of the Roman Catholic priesthood was the book of Hebrews. As he observed the Roman Catholic priesthood, he felt it resembled more of the Levitical priesthood than the priesthood fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And this frustrated him. For in the book of Hebrews, Luther was confronted with the truth that the fulfillment of the Levitical priesthood is in Jesus Christ. Let's read a bit of Hebrews. The former priests were many in number. But they were prevented by death from continuing office. But he, this is Jesus, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercessions for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of his people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. 
As we engaged the priesthood in Leviticus, we learned a purpose of the priesthood was to free sinners from condemnation, guilt, and fear of punishment. But engaging Hebrews reveals another purpose. The Levitical priesthood was a foreshadowing of a better priesthood, of a better priest, of a better sacrifice. You see, the the person occupying the Levitical priesthood was a weak man. Jesus is a better man. Unlike the Levites, who were many in number because they died, Jesus continues forever. His priesthood is permanent. And unlike the Levites who struggled with sin, Jesus is unstained. He is innocent. And unlike the priests who needed to offer sacrifices for their own sins, Jesus had no need to do so because he was holy and without sin. The book of Hebrews tells us Jesus is the better priest. And the book of Hebrews tells us Jesus is the better sacrifice. Whereas the sacrifice of the Levites needed to be repeated over and over again, in Christ, the sacrifice is complete. Bulls and goats could not remove the sin of humans, only a human could. And so when Christ was sacrificed, the perfect sacrifice had been made. The sacrifice once for all when he was beaten, when the nails were driven through his body, when his innocent blood splattered on the altar, it declared sinners like you and I to be innocent and clean. As such, there is no longer a need to offer sacrifices. Luther knew because of Christ, Christians no longer need to seek out an earthly priest. They no longer need to bring an animal sacrifice or any sacrifice, for that matter, to be declared righteous. Because Christ was the only sacrifice needed. Christ was the great high priest the practice of the Old Testament pointed to. Because of Christ, because of his priesthood, because of his sacrifice, an individual struggling with shame and guilt and fear of punishment no longer needed to access an earthly priest. Nor did they need to offer a sacrifice. Grace and forgiveness was accessed for every believer in Christ. And to confirm this as a source of assurance for God's people, Scripture teaches us there is a new priesthood. This priesthood is no longer rooted in genealogy or ancestry or bloodline. This priesthood is rooted in Christ. All God's people are part of a royal priesthood. This brings us to discuss the priesthood of all believers. As was read earlier, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. I think it's important to note this concept that all God's people are priests. It's not just stated in the book of First Peter. It's stated other places as well. For example, in the Old Testament, in, in the book of Isaiah, when the prophet speaks of the coming of the Lord's favor, He promises to the entire nation of Israel, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. It is not just the Levites that will be declared priests. All God's people will be declared to be priests. 
And so in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the author speaks in a couple different places of this having been fulfilled. For example, in the first chapter, he writes to him, to to Jesus, who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Jesus Christ made all God's people priests. So not only was the Levitical priesthood, not only was it pointing to Jesus as the perfect priest, Scripture is also telling us the Levitical priesthood, it points to the standing that every believer, because of Christ, now has with God the Father. For in Christ, every believer is clean, having been washed by the blood of Christ. And in Christ, every believer wears holy, royal robes. As Chris mentioned last week, Christians are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Every believer no longer stands far off from God's presence. Every believer has been brought near to God. It is no longer sin that defines God's people and determines their standing with him. It is our Savior that defines us and determines our standing with our Father in heaven. The office God had set apart for a particular group of people is now declared by him to be set apart for all his people. It is not a special class of Christians that are priests. It is not just pastors in a church like Chris and I that are priests. It is not just particular individuals or leaders in the church that are declared to be priests. All Christians are priests. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. He, meaning Peter, Peter is not talking about ministers. He is not talk, he's not speaking of a certain number of men who have passed through many grades of office and are thereby qualified to wear robes of a certain color. He is speaking of every believer and he calls every saint a member of a holy priesthood. Every Mary and every John every peasant girl and every laborer that puts his hands upon the plow, every servant of God in every capacity is a member of this holy priesthood. If your faith is in Christ, if you are united with him, this is true of you. Every Josh, and I know there are lots of you in this room, (laughs) every Josh and every Joel, you are a priest. Every Abigail and every Angela, you are a priest. Every Emily and every Eric, every Jenny and every Jill, every Katie and every Karen, every Sarah and every Seth, you are a priest. Now, for this to hit home a bit, we could take time to apply this particular doctrine. We could think through what it means to be priests to one another, praying For one another, caring for one another, serving one another. That would certainly be an application of this doctrine. But but here's my burden for us this morning. I I want you to think about yourself as an Israelite at the tent of meeting or or the temple. How how do you view yourself at this type of gathering? Do, Do you view yourself in the office of the priesthood? Someone because of Christ who stands near to God, someone who is clean and pure and holy in relation to God. 
Or do you see yourself as someone who stands far off? Someone who, because of sin, remains separated. Someone who is defined by the shame of past sin and past transgressions. Rather than the royal robes of the priesthood, these are the clothes you wear. Rather than having a sense that you have been washed clean, you feel dirty and disgusting. I think we need to be honest here. Many of us, we want to debate with the Roman Catholic how they fail to embrace the doctrine of the priesthood of believers with the hierarchical structure of the church. But as Protestants, we fail to embrace this doctrine too. Rather than wear the robes of the royal priesthood, we believe there is something or someone who will provide access to give us right standing with God to a a feeling that we can be free from guilt, to a feeling that we can be free from shame. As we conclude, I want to talk about two of those things. One, some of us struggle with this idea of standing near to God. We're insecure. We live in fear. We feel like an outsider and are disconnected. We know Standing near to God means we should be confident. We should feel assured. We should be at peace. The Levitical priesthood was a, there was a mediator standing between a holy God and a sinful people, reminding God's people they were forgiven and they could live at peace. But as was said before, the Levitical priest was a mediator, an imperfect mediator. He was simply a shadow of the once and for all mediator to come. Some of you you're still relying on an earthly priest to give you access to the peace and confidence and assurance you have in Christ. Who might this be for you? When you're struggling with insecurity, when you're struggling with shame, when you're struggling with fear, who do you look to to free you from such things? Maybe it's a current gospel community leader. Maybe it's Chris and I as your pastors. Maybe it's someone who loved you and has shown you hospitality. Maybe it's someone who discipled you. Maybe it's your spouse. When this person offers you encouragement and the words of assurance, you feel a strong sense of freedom and health. And when they don't, your standing with God is more shaky. And the peace of Christ, the peace Christ has promised you internally, it is shattered. You feel disconnected from God. You feel removed from his presence. You feel disconnected from others. Maybe you become anxious or more angry or more insecure. This person, they hold the key to you experiencing security and peace. Too many of us, we look to an earthly priest to provide ultimate security and safety and assurance. When we look to an earthly priest to accomplish what only Christ can do, we, we will be disappointed. An earthly priest will never give us ultimate freedom, ultimate forgiveness, ultimate assurance. They are imperfect. We were never intended to receive that from an earthly priest. That can only come from a perfect priest, one who is greater, the priest who sacrificed himself once for all for the sins of his people. This is the priest we need to be worshiping and resting in. The second thing some of us believed to be the key to drawing near to God is some form of ritualism. To to illustrate this, I want to share a dialogue one of my favorite pastors, 
Jeff Vanderstelt. Hopefully he's not a priest to me. But Jeff Vanderstelt, as he cared for someone in his community wrestling with ongoing sin in the area of pornography. Here's the dialogue. Jeff said, I'm going to ask you, when you continue to go back into this sinful pattern, what happens to you? When, when you go looking at this stuff, what happens to you? And the guy said, I'm filled with guilt, and I'm filled with shame. And Jeff said, do, do you believe that the cross was sufficient? That Christ died once for all? One time. He doesn't need to die over and over again. And the guy said, well, yeah, I, I do. I, I believe that. And so Jeff said, well, let me ask you, at the point of your sin, how long does it take you to, to get to the foot of the cross and to worship Jesus for the fact that he died for that sin? The guy said, well, it, it takes me two or three days at times. So Jeff says, for two or three days, you're away from the cross. And when you're doing that, who is getting all the worship, all the dependency, all the focus? The guy said, well, it's me. So Jeff says, you understand the very thing that led you into sin and pornography, you're now trusting in to lead you to grace. In other words, you're actually thinking that trusting in yourself will set you free from sin. So what do you do? The guy said, I beat myself up. So Jeff says, you believe you have to hang on a cross for what you've done. You believe you have to pay for it because the cross was not sufficient to pay for your sin. It was sufficient enough. Why not at the point that you looked at pornography, do you not get on your knees and say, thank you, God. You forgave me for what I just did. You died for this. This is good news. So we may not participate in the rituals of the Levitical priesthood or the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, but we participate in ritualistic practices nonetheless. When we have sinned, maybe it is looking at pornography, maybe it is drunkenness, maybe it is lying or greed or gossip, we look for something to give us access to freedom and peace, to bring us into right standing with a holy God. So, so rather than a ceremonial washing, we clean ourselves by beating ourselves up. We wallow in a pool of self-pity over what a wretch and how miserable we are. But only when we've beaten ourselves up enough or wallowed in self-pity long enough do we feel we can be declared clean. And rather than participating in the animal sacrifices offered by the Levitical priests, we offer the sacrifice of right behavior. Only after we've experienced a period of victory, only after we haven't been angry with our kids for a few days, only after we haven't lusted for a week, only after we've demonstrated proper hospitality to the non-Christian, only after we've talked well of our neighbor, only then can we enter God's presence and do we feel comfortable there. These are the rituals and practices we embrace. And this is not the gospel. The gospel tells us, the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers tells us, rather than being cast out of God's presence, rather than being separated from him, 
We are in God's presence. We are part of a royal priesthood. Because of Christ, we have been washed clean. Because of Christ, we have been brought near. Because of Christ, we are righteous. Because of Christ, we are clothed in the garments of a royal priest. This is who we are.